Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. So Mike, we, I think the panel today was, you know, excellent. You covered a, a real swath of issues. But one of the, you know, one of the issues that I, you know, whenever they say it's not about the money, it's always about the money. And, you know, one of the things I know is that community oncologists have invested a wealth of capital, financial resources in building infrastructure to be able to deliver all these great technologies in the safety of the office. And we heard from Dr. McEnany. Uh, Barbara was very adamant about the fact that USP 800 and the the cost to develop and manage and license and be accredited with these facilities is exorbitant. And so now if this patient has the option or maybe even a payer might mandate, which we didn't hear that, that, that these patients receive alternate site therapies and not go to these community practices, that might upset their financial balance sheets. And how much of the pushback by community oncology is really about, or alternate site infusions, is really about the economics here of those dollars being invested and not being a have scalable return on investment for them if it moves off site. What would be your opinions on that? The development of the current chemotherapy infusion suite has occurred in a series of steps over the years. And Bert and I, we both have a lot of gray hair, so we've been around for these steps. You know, back in the 80s, uh, chemotherapy was largely administered in the hospital, but it wasn't a good business fit for the hospital. Patients didn't like it. So outpatient infusion services in oncologist offices developed. And fortunately, the service delivery model occurred at a time when there was a rapid expansion of intravenous chemotherapy drugs that they could administer patients. So there was sort of a perfect storm for the rapid growth. And I think like a lot of things in life, the way this has kind of evolved isn't necessarily the way we wanted it to evolve. What is certainly true is that it's a very efficient system. The uh, patients come in, they get treated, the medicine is there waiting for them. If it needs to be adjusted, it can be done. It's a really good system. There's a limited number of distributors that are sending the drugs to the practice. They focus on customer service. They are good at it. And the practices, of course, have developed a very efficient uh, mechanism to capture those charges and submit them and get them paid. What's unfortunately true is that the cost of care has gone up a lot. And because drugs are still reimbursed based largely on a percent markup, more expensive drugs, which do not necessarily require 
more sophisticated clinical interventions have yielded substantial increase in money to the practices. And so we listen to folks like Barb, and what she says is true. That is, you could not sustain an infusion suite without some added income over and above what the current professional management codes are, the E&M codes and the infusion codes. They're just not enough to pay for the overhead. And to eliminate that model altogether, thereby eliminating the overhead, it would dramatically change how an oncologist does business. It also would dramatically change how much money an oncologist makes, without a doubt. So yes, the economics are an important and maybe the most important driver. So I think, unfortunately, we are treating this, and I'm talking about we, the doctors, the oncologists, and we, the payers, from a binary perspective. It's not a binary problem. And I think what we need to do, and, and you know, we've paid lip service to this, but we haven't done a very good job, is find a way to adequately compensate oncologists for their cognitive effort, for the risk that they're taking in administering dangerous drugs, and for a complex and expensive overhead system, because as every oncologist knows, the number one overhead expense in your practice is the cost of your chemotherapy drugs, and number two is labor cost. We just need to start thinking about an alternative way to maintain the efficiency of the system, ideally perhaps through some sort of management fee that is sensitive to all those cost inputs, while eliminating the perceived conflict of interest that buy and bill creates, and, and thereby approaching this by first solving the economic problem and then thinking about whether uh, whether you really want to get your chemotherapy in the office or you want to get it at home, it shouldn't matter, right? You can get wherever you want if it's safe, right? But right now, you're right. The economics are making it really hard for community oncologists to be very enthusiastic about home infusion. You know, Mike, you just brought back some of my brain cells to thinking about, you know, how do we get in this place? You know, and, and you're right. The, the reimbursement model is just, it doesn't work. And we're not recognizing the cost and drug margins are really paying for professional and other services. And it really needs some re-engineering. You know, I know where this all started, I think. Go back to, there was a report to Congress in 1998, gross overpayment to oncologists, which is a pretty aggressive title for a congressional report. Gross overpayment to oncologists for oncology drugs, and it was uh, it was only $5 billion under Medicare back then. Well, not, there weren't a lot of this new innovation. I remember Joe Bales was called in because they were reimbursing oncologists at $5 billion, and the government looked at the federal price schedule, which is not even 340B. It would have been $2.7 billion had they bought it through the federal supply schedule. And they felt, you know, it was unsustainable because it was growing at a billion dollars a year back then, which sounds like not a lot of money today, right, in this market. And so, you know, uh, Thompson, Secretary, and, and Tom Scully, who created some, a lot of problems here, inevitably, and you know Tom, 
they brought in uh, Joe Bales, a represented ASCO, and the argument was, sure, we make all this money on drug because the average oncologist so pinned at making seven fifty a year back then. But the problem really is that we're not getting E&M reimbursement commensurate to our cost of capital and, and time under Medicare compared to our expense, our reimbursements out there. And if it wasn't for the drug margins, we couldn't service patients. And so Thompson and Scully instructed OIG to go back and with the time, the clipboards and the stopwatches and reevaluate the RVUs and the modifiers. And when they took oncologists and they did this chart comparing all practitioners in the Medicare practice expense to reimbursement, oncologists were about 8% north of the 50 percentile. And that meant, according to the analysis then, the RVUs were good. So I understood in an internal meeting that Thompson and Scully this then told everyone at CMS, look, don't invite them in anymore. We're just going to fix it. And they created ASP, thinking that ASP would eliminate the problem of the profit on the drugs. It actually didn't, and it created some more perverse incentives, they think. Although, look, there's no evidence that an oncologist is using a more expensive drug over a cheaper drug just for their own pocket. I mean, sure, there's un unscrupulous people out there, but generally speaking, most of you in that profession aren't. You do what's in the best interest of the patient. So, look, it, the fight over money has been happening for a long time. I think we need drug benefit reform. And I think there's also a huge disparity between oral and infused drugs. You know, it's based on copay and the supply channel it creates clinical fragmentation. So I, I think it's a worthwhile discussion probably for the industry to have and try to fix what's really wrong to your point, that there's great dislocation between reimbursement for services and drugs, and we need to fix it. No doubt. No doubt. I think right now, so much of the conversation has been dominated about the effects of COVID on healthcare, among other things. It's very hard to see when we'll be ready to have this discussion. But you know, as you know, Bert, I've, I've been thinking about this for a very long time, about how we could develop a fair reimbursement model that not only reimburses physicians for their cognitive efforts, but actually differentially rewards physicians for performance, right? I mean, the oncology care model, of course, was a step towards that. But, you know, commercial payers, no matter what they say, they haven't pursued that kind of a model very aggressively at all. In fact, it's almost like back to the future for me, because almost all of them are looking at uh, some sort of pathways program, which, of course, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. And now some of them are starting to look at some modification of the oncology medical home. So I'll tell you something. I was at Aetna quite some time ago now, right. and we did a lot of work in the oncology medical home. And it's like, well, let's just say that some, some, some of the pairs act like they've just found religion or something. So we'll see what happens. Uh, the only good thing is I'm old, and it's going to take a long time for this to uh, kind of evolve. So heaven forbid, but if I need my treatment, I'll be able to go to my local community oncology office and, 
be treated not only like a human being, but like someone who they really, really care about, and they'll try to make my journey as easy as possible. Now, rolling off to that topic, we heard on the panel today about a, a pancreatic patient that uh, Dr. Wrighty from CTCA had, who was, because of COVID, putting off visits, many scheduled therapies, and he progressed. So I think at the end of the day, you know, the patient voice is usually important. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, how do we balance consumerism, you know, what the patient wants and what's in the best interest of the patient in this delicate balance of service, economics, safety, and everything else that we need to consider? Yeah, I think sometimes we talk about convenience like it's a bad word. Uh, it ain't a bad word, right? My good friend, Alan Balch, over at the Patient Advocacy Foundation, often talks about how we, we've come to this conclusion that we can define financial toxicity for our patients, and it's all about the cost of the drug. And he says repeatedly, it's not just the drug. It's transportation, and it's parking, and it's childcare and it's absenteeism from work. And the truth of the matter is that consumerism is, I think, going to become increasingly important uh, as we develop these programs. Telehealth is a wonderful example. Most people, based on the numbers that I've seen, they actually like telehealth. But they don't necessarily like telehealth as a total substitute for seeing their doctor, nor do they like telehealth as a substitute for seeing the rest of the care team? And frankly, and I, I know this sounds paternalistic, but it's not meant to be. We actually don't know what we're losing when we substitute telehealth from face-to-face. -face. We just have no idea. People who've done a lot of telehealth will tell you that the experience of, if you will, audio and video telehealth is completely different than the experience of a phone call, right? So there's so much we don't know. We were forced to do things because of COVID that maybe we aspire to, but to be perfectly blunt, we weren't ready for. We, we just hadn't done our due diligence yet. So I think, getting back to your question about consumerism, that patients like interacting with their care team. They do, it's comforting. It may lead to superior health outcomes, maybe. But what the payers don't want is for doctors to be paid like lawyers, <laughs> right? You call a lawyer, the clock's ticking, and you're paying for those minutes on the phone. Payers do not want to pay doctors like lawyers. They just don't. So what we need to do is think about how we integrate telehealth with the rest of our care delivery strategy. And, of course, if we go to a payment model that's capitated, right, actually there will be incredible incentive to promote remote monitoring, televisits, in lieu of face-to-face, -face, which has its associated overhead. But I talk like we're doing this in a coherent, logical fashion, and we are not doing anything in this entire pandemic in a coherent or logical fashion. So why should this be any different? It's just not. But that doesn't mean I've given up hope. I do agree with our panelists. There will be some element of telehealth that survives. Mm -hmm. I think there are 
they're kidding themselves if they think the commercial payers are going to pay them the same amount of money for a telehealth visit as they get for a face-to-face -face visit. They're just not gonna do it. And we're seeing some early indication of payers saying things like, when can we stop doing this, right? When can we reset the thermostat for, for how much we pay for this? It's been publicized by the AMA. It's been in the newspaper. I mean, we're, all, we're gonna see recalibration and people are gonna be mad about it, but we can't just continue so at this point, the payers look at this and they say, all right, this is an added expense. Yeah. No, the payers don't want to pay more money. Never. So we'll see how this all plays out. I think there's so much potential for remote patient monitoring and really staying much closer to our patients. It's funny. When I was in practice, I remember when I first went into practice, the argument was always, should you give your patient your phone number? remember those days? Should you give your patient your phone number? And then it was, should you give your patient your email address? So some of this feels a little weird that way because patients were telling you what they wanted. So we'll see. You know, I, I totally agree with that. And I think our panel did. There will be a lot of elements of telehealth that will uh, be incorporated into this new world we're operating in. So let's just go to my last observation was, is the supply channel capable of delivering? And, you know, Mike, you and I have been around a long time. And uh, you remember old Option Care and Quorum? Oh, yeah. Owned by CVS and Option Care got bought by Walgreens, spun out into separate companies. Plenty of very good local, regional home health care providers that supply the drug antibiotic therapies, the Remicades, uh, whatever patients need, and send a nurse and get the drug there safely and dispose of things and do it with scale. So maybe, and we hear about this, right? We hear that, you know, CVS through that operation today is looking at it and others. If they have, and we heard from Lisa Kennedy, you know, the, you have to have a an oncology certified nurse, right? Someone who really understands the therapy. So if the training's there and the accreditation's there and the infrastructure's there. And to Roger, your colleague uh, at your ex Edna uh, home, said, look, one size doesn't fit all and don't try to pigeonhole it that way. So I think the infrastructure's there to be able to do this with scale, uh, if not put burden on practices and allow, look, if option A doesn't fit, you got to have a secondary plan, an option B. So what do you think with the ability to use outside channels? You've practiced in this area of medicine for long enough. Do you think it's a possibility? I think it's not only a possibility, it's a probability. So listen, CVS did not buy Aetna so that they could put minute clinics out there to manage ear infections. No money in ear infections, right? They envision an evolution of minute clinics to chronic disease management, and that includes oncology. And I will predict, I will predict right. that they will ultimately subcontract oncologists to provide cancer care in those areas. I think we recently saw Walgreens ink a deal with Village MD, a company that I'm very familiar with because one of their co-founders is a close friend. It's an excellent care delivery model, and they will be looking at subspecialty care. That is where the money is, or more precisely, where the savings are. And 
what we've heard Larry Merlo from CVS say a million times is, you know, there's a CVS in every neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's true, right? And there's Walmart everywhere. And Walmart has already signaled they're going to get into this business. And listen, we're going to see alternate sites of service evolve because hospitals are too darn expensive. And that move by Aetna, that was about hospital outpatient departments and nothing else. It was all about the markup. And there are some obscene markups that are occurring in hospital outpatient departments that parenthetically are also widening their margin by being 340B. I mean, honest to goodness, right? And so we will see this happen. We will see this happen for sure in the next five years, guaranteed. And we may see further diminution in the role of hospitals delivering chemotherapy just because we can do it. We can. What you say is true, Bert. Well, thank you for today, uh, Mike. Uh, I learned a lot today, and you know that's our mission, right? ABBCC, share knowledge. We don't need a history lesson, but sometimes it's good to go back and look at history. You know, having statues maybe reminds us of how far we've come. And, you know, certainly in cancer, we have our statues to look at, too. Uh, look, thank you so much. I mean, as always, you're a great thought leader, and uh, you've been a great friend, and enjoy working with you. So let's keep this discussion going. Let's try to bring more people into the fold. And I'm like you. I believe that the future can be better. I haven't lost hope. Thanks, Bert. As that famous saying goes, he who doesn't learn from the past is doomed to repeat it. And... Uh... <laughs> we've had some, we've had some painful learnings over the years, um, and in this specific area, experience matters. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, gee, that was just great today, and thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. As usual, great content and the sharing of information usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality of care that we're responsible for delivering, along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. It's very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.